It's June 3rd, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. Today, we'll get right to our great guests. First up, Alan Tamayose will tell us about the upcoming Kamehameha Schools EdTech Conference and Unconference. Then Bob Monroe joins us to tell us about Hacker High School. And then continuing with our hacker conversation, we'll move on to our main topic after the break. Zell, um, Zell, as me and Andrew Lanning will join us to share their perspectives on cybersecurity. We'll look at it from both a local and national perspective. And, of course, they can answer your questions about keeping your information safe. Have your questions and thoughts ready to call in or tweet. But first... Well, joining us, of course, to kick things off is Alan Tamayose, and he's from Kamehameha Schools. And they're putting on their annual... EdTech Conference and Unconference, and I want to welcome Alan. Welcome to the show. Aloha. Thank you so much for having me. Now Very you, excited. Uh, yeah, good. Uh, we want to make you as excited as possible. <laughs> <laughs> now, the um, Kamehameha School has been putting on this conference for a while, right? But I think it's only been a maybe a couple, three or four years that the Unconference element has been sort of incorporated. But tell us a little bit about the history of the uh, conference itself. Okay. Well, our um, the history of our conference started with um, Alan November, who's a leader in education technology, kind of helped us launch a conference on campus. And after a couple of years, we moved out to the Blaisdell Center and had our first one in 2008. And then it was great, but we took a couple of years off and mm-hmm. then continued in 2012. And in 2013, it Thanks to you, um, Bert, you you helped us launch our unconference. You did a lot of hand-holding and a lot of supporting, and we were able to do that starting, yeah, just in 2013, and it was awesome. Thanks for laying all that credit on (laughs) me. One story that came out of that experience was the birth of EdCamp Honolulu, Mm -hmm. which has been a huge success. Now I'm curious. <clears throat> well, not to you know, not to belabor the point that I helped you with this <laughs> conference, but was there? Did you see benefits that came that come out of the unconference, or that ultimately ended up being the the um, ed camp education yeah, camp? Well, what we found was, um, you know, in professional development for teachers, um, after years of a lot of these conferences, mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. it begins to become repetitive. So we wanted to kind of change things around, and. I actually attended your unconference at um, Windward Community okay, College, right, and right. it was amazing. And I shared it at a department meeting. And at that time, everybody wanted to try different things. Right, and you know, there's a there's definitely a climate for uh, collaboration. I think that that enables people to brainstorm because a lot of conferences, like you said, you kind of get into this routine of okay, I'm going to go to the conference, I'm going to hear a talking head, and they're going to you know, probably lay a whole bunch of information <laughs> on me. Here's a keynote, here's a sponsor, exactly here's right. a panel. Yeah. And, and we do still have that, and we have outstanding keynotes mm-hmm, and presenters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we also wanted to do something that was more um, active for our attendees, something mm-hmm. where they can p- participate and share and kind of create their own PD for themselves, mm-hmm. be able so, to yeah, meet up with like-minded individuals and just kind of uh, – Connect with one another and just share ideas and try to start brand new things. What's the uh, what's the uh, breakdown of the schedule that you have planned? I know it's a couple of days, right? Yeah. So um, our unconference is next Monday, mm-hmm. the eighth, and it'll be from twelve to four thirty. And the following Tuesday and Wednesday, it's a two day conference where we have keynotes and presenters from you know students as well as teachers from different schools. We have presenters from. You know, Punahou, Iolani, as mm-hmm. well as um, Kamehameha, Hawaii, and Maui, and 
and it's just true collaboration. So when you talk about moving it to the Blaisdell and making it more open and you have some participation from other schools, when you're talking about people to attend, to soak in, and in the unconferences case, participate and even build the program and contribute to the content, how wide open are those doors? Who are the people you're looking to draw from outside the current uh, ed tech and uh, unconference uh, group that's been coming every every year? Right. So so the conference is open to Hawaii educators, public, private, preschools, um, higher education. And when we did the unconference, because it was just sent out and, and it was open to anyone, we had people from industry actually seeing it on Eventbrite and just deciding, oh, I'm just going to check it out. Mm-hmm. And they came and you know, they were able to contribute and give you know a lot of nice perspectives and resources. So whether I, I would imagine you wouldn't want vendors to come and pitch necessarily, but if <laughs> someone's passionate about a specific topic, a specific platform, a uh, specific idea, they could participate in the sense that they would add their voice, their uh, expertise to any particular session. Right, and and I guess one of the rules is we we try not to have vendors come in. Right, but right. Anyone who has you know like a neat idea or a cool website that they want to share. Then you know everyone's just huddled around together with their laptops and just sharing. So, so tell me an example of uh, some of the other topics that the community came up with. People show up, they build this. This they can basically say, "I want to talk about this," and it becomes a session. Mm-hmm. What are some examples of these well, crowdfunded or crowdfunded uh, crowd sourced sourced topic ideas? Well, one of the the really popular topics last year was Google. You know, mm-hmm. with Google Apps for Education, and another really popular buzzword right now is coding. So we have a lot of um, different different um, um, presentations on coding and Minecraft and, and things of that nature. Now, one of the things I'm kind of curious about, and, and this is a challenge that uh, uh, we've tried various tools to to overcome, which is at what point in time do you actually solicit ideas from your audience? Do you wait till the day of the event, or are you soliciting ideas uh, as we speak? Okay, yeah, um, so... I know you do that survey thing, which is pretty amazing. Um, we haven't done that yet. It's pretty much um, whoever comes that day, we just have the grid up and, mm-hmm. and they start and they're sharing. And writing it right. in. Right. They just start it. sharing yeah. at that point. Now, that, 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 that can be um, very uh, exciting because it's very spontaneous, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and you never know what to expect until the day of. Yeah, if somebody wants to talk about uh, watercolor painting and its applications, <laughs> then and ten people vote for it, then why not? You know that can happen. Mm-hmm. But let's let's talk a little bit about the the program side, the conference side, the ed tech, the serious curriculum development side. Are there themes or specific experts that you're bringing in to uh, participate there? Yeah, well, we have different themes, things like creativity and. Um, coding and global education and things like that. And we, because there are so many conferences going on at different locations, different schools, and there's a lot of friendships and relationships being built, we're pulling on a lot of um, expertise from different schools. And so it's a really rich um, lineup that we have, Mm -hmm. one of the best we've ever had. Now, I I noticed that during the uh, conference part of it, you have a variety of different formats as well. So it's not a straight talk to uh, your audience for you know 45 to an hour it's like there's a right. there's a segment that I think I'm participating in, which is called the soapbox right so you kind of get up on your soapbox and you you got 5 <laughs> minutes and it's like an ignite talk right, right. you kind of pick a topic and talk about whatever for 5 minutes and, and, and it's much in the spirit of TED talks where we have people from Well it's not going to be of a uh, TED talk quality uh, I must, oh, I must yours admit. will be but <laughs> no, um, no. in that same kind of a sp- same kind of spirit where you, you're passionate about an idea or something that 
you've learned and you just want to share. And, you know, besides you, we have someone from, we have Genesis from TEDx Honolulu, mm-hmm. who's mm-hmm. the lead curator. We have someone from the Honolulu Museum. Um, we have... Oh, who's from the uh, Honolulu Museum that you have? Oh, um, we have um, Betsy and Jenny. Oh, cool. And... You know, they, uh, I mean, not to diverge, but I guess I'll diverge. I mean, they're very, they're very active in social media, so oh, I'm, I'm okay. sure they got a lot of new, innovative ideas to bring mm-hmm. the museum to a younger audience. And before we share the details, and, do you know anything about the, the keynote speaker? Can you share a little bit about Stephen uh, Ritz? Oh, okay. Stephen Ritz, he's an educator from Brooklyn, and he does garden-based learning. And they were a- able to revolutionize their school. And it's uh, another hot topic that's catching on. Get your but hands One dirty. more quick thing about sure, Soapbox. Sure. We also have Russell from Bev League who will be sharing there. Russell Chang. Oh, Russell Chang. Uh-huh. And if you've heard of The Canvas, which are a group of students who've developed their own work, uh, co-working space. Oh, yeah. I think we did. I think we covered, we covered it. that. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah. So we have um, Jessica and Isabel. Oh, oh they're going to be part of the... And Tiffany. Yes. Oh, cool. Very good. I know. That's a, a wide range. And you, and you got a lot of interesting people to... Uh, to, to speak. I mean, that's fun. Yeah, so this is uh, June 8th through 10th. It is happening at the Neil Blaisdell Center. Uh, for those who are furiously writing notes and want to participate, want to sign up and attend, uh, where can they find more information? Okay, the best place is to go on Twitter. We're at KS EdTech, and there you'll find a link to our website, our conference website, how to download the guidebook for our uh, for your mobile device mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and all the information that you'd want. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And, of course, we'll have the link on our show notes at bitemarkscafe.org. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing your event. No, thank you so much for your support through the years. Aloha. Yeah, Absolutely. Sounds good. And, of course, now joining us is, uh, of course, Alan. Thank you very much. Now joining us is Bob Monroe, and he's here to tell us about something new that we kind of just heard about called Hacker High School. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate you guys having me uh, here today. Yeah, good. So, you know, we, in fact, I guess in the spirit of this uh, this show, which we talk about cybersecurity, uh, there's a lot more interest, I think, on the part of various programs to get the students involved with cybersecurity and, and sort of building the capacity and understanding. Uh, tell us a little, little bit about the Hacker High School. Well, uh, th- we started uh, back about 15 years ago. Uh, what we were noticing was uh, pretty much a trend. There has been and probably always will be a shortage of people in the cybersecurity profession. Uh, In fact, Department of Labor Statistics is showing that the cybersecurity uh, field actually has a zero uh, percent employment, unemployment rate. So nobody with with cybersecurity in their background is unemployed right now, Mm -hmm. except for me, I think. But what we did is we we looked at uh, the Institute for Security and Open Methodology, ESICOM, mm-hmm. which is our higher our parent organization. Uh, Pete Herzog, who's the managing director, uh, said, "Okay, how how can we basically change the way people are looking at security? Because we're making the same mistakes over and over and over again, and nothing is changing." So he came up with the idea of let's start focusing on teens. So let's start at that level and he created Hacker High School and what he did was he reached out to all of his friends who are some of the most some of the foremost experts in the cybersecurity field and he had them all write and build these lessons mm-hmm. now when i came on board in 2012 the first thing i did is i looked at these lessons and i read them and i told Pete i said Pete these are great lessons but they're boring I said, give them to me. I said, let me bobify them. Let me do my <laughs> thing. Word. Yeah, it's a good word. And bobify. so Pete said, okay, Bob, you can have less, lesson number two. Lesson number two is yours. You do your thing. So I took it, 
and I rewrote it. I added cheese whiz jokes. I added jokes about smelly socks. Um, <laughs> I basically I took the very technical parts of it and I made them easier to digest, easier mm-hmm. to understand. Probably a little more fun. So one thing that I think we need to uh, emphasize is that Hacker High School, although you are trying to build the program here in Hawaii, it is not even just a national program. It is an international program. Yeah, we're translated into 25 different languages. Now, here is one of the scary statistics that uh, that I bring up is that we have 6 million users right now, so 6 million students in Hacker High School right now. Of the 6 million students that we currently have, only 2% of them are from the United States because we track them by domain. So that means China gets it, Asia gets it, Europe understands it, but somehow the United States doesn't understand that cybersecurity is very important. In fact, China wants to buy Hacker High School. They want the whole curriculum, and they want it to themselves. Um, now, we're, uh, we're, we are an open-source program. Mm-hmm. Our lessons are free to download. Anybody can go onto our website and download the lessons, and you can pick whatever language you want. If you want to you know, learn them in Burmese, you can learn them in Burmese, um, you know, Polish, French, whatever it is. Um, so those are absolutely free to download. And if you want to teach them at, at a school, we have the teacher training curriculum as well. And we also have a cert- certification that's endorsed by the Institute for Security and Open Methodology. So if you were a teacher and you're teaching other elements, and we have perhaps had other programs, I would say, as you pointed out uh, previously, you know, maybe more vendor-specific or technology-specific or brand-specific. You have, uh, you know, cyber patriot and programs like that. But if you were a teacher who basically does want to incorporate as many possible tools, open their minds as much as possible to different approaches, particularly the open source and vetted approach in that way, you know, question everything. Uh, If you're a teacher like that, you could just get started. It's not like uh, there's a there's an accreditation fee or whatever. You want to show up at your class next semester. You know, summer's here. You can get wound up and be ready to teach Hacker High School by uh, August. Absolutely. And that's one of the key things. One of the big differences between us and any other program out there is, first of all, we have a curriculum. Um, Most of the other programs out there don't have a curriculum. The other thing is, as we teach this thing, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it or your listeners have ever heard of this thing, but reach back deep into your mind, back deep into the memory. It's, or it's, open it's, Google. It's scary oh. back there. but It's this thing called the command line interface. You guys I remember know. that? Ah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, Absolutely. well, we, we teach the command line interface. Oh, hardcore. Yeah, so we don't, uh, we don't teach any tools. We don't teach anything other than going back to the old DOS prompt, even though it's not the DOS prompt anymore, or going back to the you know root. Mm-hmm. Um, and the very plumbing of your computer. Exactly. Deep down into the recesses, because that's not going to lie to you. Uh, other software might not tell you exactly what it knows or, or all the information. Yeah, Windows will say, security alert. Is it red, green, yellow? Is it one, two, three? But what does that really mean? If you're down there, if you understand the things that come out when you're using command line interface, you can troubleshoot to the finest detail. Yeah, exactly. And plus, you can control things down to the finest detail as well. Now, you were saying that <clears throat> uh, just 2% of the people that are downloading the curriculum is from the U.S. And have you a sense as to like what part of the U.S. that might be? And is it? Are there ways that you can sort of encourage people? Are there lessons learned from the places that are downloading it? Uh, well, we know. Well, one of the, one of the the, the issues is is, uh, I guess you could you could say that the countries that we're most predominant in are the countries that have uh, limited resources, economic resources. Mm-hmm. Um, they see these lessons and they see that they're free. 
And one of the things that I pitch is, is that you can graduate high school and you can go out and get a job making what, you know, five or excuse me, seven, eight, ten, twelve dollars an hour, or you can graduate hiker high school and go out and get a job making forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year. It's up to you. It's your choice. For a lot of countries out there, this is a good way, a great way for them to get an economic footing step up, and it doesn't cost them anything. There's no. Have you um, have you approached uh, any of our uh, community colleges? I know that the uh, Honolulu Community College folks are are looking at a uh, cybersecurity curriculum, and I you know I don't know if you guys you guys have talked, but I mean I'm, I'm sure they're uh, it benefit them if they didn't have to develop them you know develop it themselves. Well, actually, it's I'm I'm trying to get into the University of Hawaii. They just created a cybersecurity PhD program. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get into that, uh, but there's a few hurdles along the way. Are you saying get in as a as a not a student, but as a as, no, as, a, <laughs> as a student as a student? Okay, yeah. and what what might be the hurdles to do that? I mean, besides well, taking the entrance exam and all that. Well, the entrance exam you got to know algorithms. Uh huh. And I've been doing digital security for 26 years, and I've never used algorithms before. I right. see. I so, see. but and I think I mean, and Burt did mention the the PCAT program and stuff. But I, but one of the things that did stand out, and and I, I it's been mentioned, <laughs> is that a lot of the entrenched uh, cybersecurity programs are focused on Microsoft security or or, or you know, uh, it's a solution. And certainly, people who have those skills, like I used to have to run a Microsoft. Exchange server, and at a, there was a point where I'm that was a plus. I'm sorry my, to hear that. I know, uh, <laughs> but what Hacker High School is even, far more fundamental than that, and questioning the kind of things that these package tools can tell you. Mm-hmm. So I would say that if a program is uh, really kind of had for various reasons, including resources, has to select a path that's following Microsoft or something down that way, then Hacker High School is uh, it might be a little more tricky for them to wrap their brains around. That's why I like, though, that any independent educator can participate. Have you um, just launched this? How are you finding the conversations you're having with educators here in Hawaii? Um, Actually, we haven't had many conversations with anybody here in Hawaii. We haven't had many conversations with anybody except for RSA back in April. Mm -hmm. Uh, Got a lot of uh, uh, interest peaked in that. Uh, But uh, right now, all of our interest is overseas. It's with other countries. So, well, you're, so now you're here on Hawaii Public Radio. Right, you're doing the outreach yeah. thing. and Reaching a specifically geeky-oriented You know, and, and um, you were showing me <laughs> your Raspberry Pi and how you might connect that to a drive and actually getting a, an image of the drive. I mean, that almost sounds like something that maybe a high-capacity or a maker group would be interested in because it's so hands-on. And, and you're, you're actually taking some of the basic elements and, and doing some forensics. Yeah, and that's... Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do is, uh, my, my you know Pete Herzog approached me and he said, you know, how can we approach these for, these countries that don't have a lot of money uh, and let them you know, learn using computers? So I said, you know, we've got these things called microcomputers. Thirty five dollar per Raspberry Pi has the same processing power as most laptops. Plus, it's got four USB ports, HDMI out, uh, and it runs off of five volts. So basically, mm. four AA batteries, and you've got a desktop computer there. Well, you know, Bob, when you talk about people with limited resources, that sounds like our educators a lot of times. And when you talk about curriculum free for the taking, I think that's attractive as well. So I hope that our show can help you make those connections. But if somebody listening wants to learn more about Hacker High School, become a Hacker High School teacher, where can they go for more information? Uh, all they have to do is go into www.hackerhighschool.org. It's just one word, hackerhighschool.org. And if they express interest in Hawaii, they'll probably get you. They'll get, probably get me. Sounds Fantastic. good. 
fantastic. Well, thanks, Bob, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that's, uh, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Zal Asmi and Andrew Lanning, and we'll talk about cybersecurity. How are some of the ways we can secure our digital lives, especially as we rely on technology more and really share more? We'd love your thoughts or uh, and questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're monitoring Twitter. We're live in the studio. You can Reach us at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Coming up next time on Marketplace, an interview from the Oval Office. We'll talk to President Obama about free trade and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Who wins, who loses, and how come? Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. Dancers of Nahula o Kauhiku Kapulani range in age from 3 to 53, and their mission is to foster an appreciation of hula through language, music, dance, crafts, folklore, and more. We'll talk with Kumuhula Kapu Kinimaka Alkiza about Kauai's 33rd annual hula exhibition tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Hawaii Supply. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Zal Azmi and Andrew Lanning. Zal is currently serving as the Chief, Oper- uh, Chief Executive Officer and President for Nexus Solutions, LLC, and worked on the state's cybersecurity framework. Andrew Lanning, meanwhile, heads up Integrated Security Technologies, a cybersecurity firm. He also co-hosts the great Hibachi Talks with Gordon Bruce on the fantastic Think Tech Hawaii Network. Uh, you know, fa- fantastic isn't in our show notes. I don't know where that word <laughs> came from. <laughs> wow, but of course, thanks. Uh, as we... Uh, as do we uh, have all these issues surrounding security and privacy become more and more complex, we need to understand what we need to do. So we'd love to have your questions and comments, and you can call us here in the studio live, 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you both, Zell and Andrew, to Bite Marks Cafe. Aloha. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Now, Zell, I'll start with you and... Um, you know, you were introduced by a, a good friend of ours, uh, uh, Paola Sabini, and she's, uh, um, you know, she was with uh, the state's uh, OIMT, and and I think you had been involved with uh, with the state's uh, security framework. I'm I'm kind of curious in terms of, you know, starting with something so large as an enterprise of that nature. What actually goes into a framework? I mean, what is it that, you know, that a that a, a, a security expert like you might start? Where do you start? Oh, okay, there's a blank page, and you're going <laughs> to fill it in. <laughs> Where do you start on a framework of that nature? You know, that's an excellent question, actually. When we came here to um, work with the state of Hawaii and the task was given to us, we looked at it. And like you said, it's daunting. I mean, uh, you have so many uh, departments, so many services, so many divisions, the critical infrastructure. Uh, and just the geographic location of state of Hawaii, 
makes it very, very difficult to secure. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, and what we did was actually because it was a large enterprise, uh, we went back to the National Institute of Standards and uh, Technology, the NEST framework, which just came out, the 2014 uh, uh, NEST uh, NEST, uh, cybersecurity framework came out, and we used that actually as a assessment framework for the work we did here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of uh, time and energy went to it. Um, We talked to a lot of people in here. We reviewed a lot of projects, the strategy. And um, and we used that governance framework actually to produce a report, not only to talk about where the security posture of the uh, state is, but also what are some of the steps to take to go forward and map that against the existing projects that was already highlighted by the state because we didn't want, did not want to deviate from some of the work we had. Mm-hmm. And I think it was very well received by the state. So now when we talk about building a framework and trying to tackle all of this, I think really the first question that pops into many people's minds, including myself, uh, working at a small business here in Hawaii, you know, uh, you want to know how to get started. You said these are some of the paths, but really when you're sitting there and your boss says, we need to be more secure, go do it. Um, <laughs> one of the challenges you might run into is you start calling vendors and what you get is what a vendor wants to sell you, which may or may not be the right way to start a project because then you end up building a perfect product for the vendor versus the perfect product for your company. So. Andrew, is there a starting point for the overworked and stressed IT person, not that that's me, um, to to kind of build something before you start getting your mind filled with this company and that software package? I believe, uh, just as Sal said, you've got to start with an assessment. And the guidance is there, so you don't have to put a lot of thought into what to do. The trick is to go. That that I think that assessment, Sal, was for small business, medium business, large business. It was offered as a a framework that anyone can use to get started. And it's got tiers uh, to work through. And the, the guidance is there. It references some uh, uh, CMM, uh, maturation model, uh, a way to get from I have nothing, I don't know what I'm doing, to I have something, I still don't know what I'm doing, to I know uh, I'm okay, doing. now we're learning a few things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it, it's a quite a long process to, to you get to where you're actually penetration testing and doing vulnerability assessment and then monitoring yourself once you're a really mature organization. It's a long ways and a lot of money to get there, and I think Sal could uh, attest well, to that. So what you're saying is this NIST, this uh, framework that just had just come out, it's essentially a, maybe a, something that I could download and start working from, filling it out, checking off boxes, and, and stepping myself through that. Yeah, I believe the the government did a lot of work to to work on. It's been around a long time, and this was it February of fourteen, I think. February of fourteen. You're absolutely right, but I will not recommend that for a small business because Mm -hmm. it will become very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. uh, Because the complexity of the state of Hawaii in a small business, I see, very very different. Mm -hmm. So going back to what was said here, you know, you want to make an assessment up front, not all of the technology, but of the organization, their needs and wants. In that governance framework we talked about, is just a roadmap, something to guide you through the process. But you need experts like Andrew to come in here and help you, and say, okay, for your business, this is the part of the framework that actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, when you do that kind of a, an assessment, uh, uh, I'm sure it takes hours and hours of sort of discussion with your client. At you know, There's always that level of trust that you need to establish that you're not coming in to sell them some product. So it really has to rely on your sort of expertise. How do you present that to, you know, if you're talking to a whole bunch of people, 
and they're all having a gauge that trust level with you to be true to what they're revealing, how do you establish that kind of a relationship when they need to have that in order for you to make that you know, very baseline assessment? You know, interestingly, uh, within our own company, the Nexus Solution, uh, I mean, the foundation is about collaboration and communication. Mm-hmm. And we are not looking in terms of a technical solution. We are looking in terms of a business solution to help the company to protect their assets. Could be IP, could be financial, could be identity, whatever it may be. And that resonates with the senior leadership because folks in the board, they understand what is important to them. Mm-hmm. And once you talk to them about the business and how you're going to solve a business problem, then information technology becomes an enabler. Mm-hmm. And that resonates with them quite a bit. Oh, very Well, good. I do like that you've uh, helped us maybe frame the conversation. Uh, if you you have five computers and two employees, then you know maybe we're not uh, necessarily uh, – you have to find the solution that works for you. Uh, Andrew, when you're talking about uh, a government scale or a large business scale or uh, a large network, uh, which I think we're, we're, we're definitely focusing on, uh, where would you draw that line? How would you define a complex, large network for someone to say, oh, okay, that's us? Well, I think, I think anyone that's got a connection that, that's to the Internet, first of all, that is vulnerable. And as Sal said, you've got to actually understand what you have at risk. What information do you have that's at risk or that's on the move? that puts your company at risk, whether that information was taken and sold, whether that information was, it got, you had to uh, notify people that that information was uh, breached and was given out or, or that you lost it, um, you know, the, mm. the PR outfall from that. So, again, that assessment piece and that risk piece, if you're connected to the Internet and your network is connected to the Internet or you've got any wireless connectivity going on, you know, you're open. So, actually, I think that's a good point. You know, in my head, I'm trying to figure out what you say – a hundred computers, five hundred computers, a thousand employees. But really, if you're one employee with the most sensitive information, <laughs> yeah, then you are still a high level of of risk and precautions you need to take. Versus, you know, a, a million people that sell soap on a street corner. I mean, so uh, it's really the sensitivity. It's really weighing that assessment. Yeah, I mean, and that's where you know I think uh, whether it's big business, small business, we you've seen all the examples in the media. We don't have to go over all of that, but where, whoever it is, they're they're always amazed that this has happened to them, and it's because they haven't taken these first steps like Sal's doing and coming in and starting with this assessment, getting the C-suite on board with what your real risks are because they haven't assessed it yet properly in, in many times. And we're, we're brought in often as physical security guys to fix, oh, something's missing or we're tired of this problem in our parking lot. Well, that, that's maybe not actually the issue. You know, cameras aren't the solution or, or maybe a, just putting a gate or a fence up isn't actually the solution. You know, you've got to look at what the actual problem is, how it's being engaged, and then what are the risks of it happening. Mm-hmm. There's probability versus possibility, right? And, you know, some things that could happen could be catastrophic, extremely expensive to protect from, but the odds are 1 in 10 million. Can't really afford that, especially at small business. You know, as you, as you start small, um, you've really got to – put your resources where the assets are greatest and where the risks are greatest. So, Sal, in that, in that case, uh, that's, a, that's a great point. I mean, when somebody has already been breached, uh, the priority is very high. Uh, when somebody is, you know, doesn't have anything that uh, or feels that there is a, a low security risk, they, their priority is, is pretty low in terms of trying to come up with a solution. Uh, especially when going into a large enterprise like like a state government, I mean, I'm sure you encountered various levels of of interests, and and how do you raise the criticality of what you're trying to talk about across the different 
sort of you know uh, priorities yeah within <laughs> those departments. <laughs> So I'll, I'll give you some statistics because um, earlier we were talking about small businesses. Mm-hmm. The 75% of small businesses, or should I say 75% of U- United States economy depends on small businesses, okay? And there are millions of small businesses in this country. And 70% of these small businesses actually produce the first job for our citizens. That's where they learn and grow and go forward. of these uh, small businesses will not survive a cyber attack six months after that attack occurs. They go out of business. So that's the criticality of their business. And when you talk to the small businesses, here's their attitude. I don't have anything of the value. Mm -hmm. Why would somebody come after me? I'm too small. Nobody knows I live. But when you talk to a hacker, the hacker looks to the sweet spot, to the softest spot in your network. And that's how they get in there. Mm -hmm. And small businesses may not suffer a loss because the hacker is not going to damage his home base because he's using that computer network to get to bigger things. Mm-hmm. So the, in terms of criticality, when we talk with small and large and medium businesses, that's the way we discuss what is important. When we get into an organization and we do our assessment, we take that enterprise and we break it into mission application. What is mission critical? What is mission essential? What are administrative systems? And then go to the probability and possibility of an attack and risk. And we say, okay, if you have $100, that's where you want to spend it. Mm-hmm. If you have $1,000, here's where you're going to spend it. And that's how we help the organizations to manage and maintain their portfolio, reduce risk, and make smart investments in the security of their organization. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Zal Azmi over at uh, Nexus Solutions and Andrew Lanning from Hibachi Talks at ThinkTech as well as Integrated Security Technologies about cybersecurity and large enterprise uh, deployments of technology and how to keep your information safe. If you have a question or a thought on this topic, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll also be checking Twitter. Now, uh, Andrew, you said earlier, you know, if you have a computer connected to the Internet, you're vulnerable. And I think people might hear that periodically, but uh, can you make it more clear? Because, like, for example, let's say I run a blog, which I do, and it's a very small blog and not too many people read it. And I think, well, it's a small blog, not too many people read it. Who's going to pay attention to it? They probably won't even find it. You have the mindset of security through obscurity. I'm such a small fish. I'm not targeted. But one thing that I learned even just running WordPress is that if you have an install of WordPress accessible on the Internet, just by having it sit there, it's being attacked a thousand times a day, even if you don't have a thousand readers of your blog. So for a computer on the network, what are we looking at? How huge is this swarm of attacks just looking for weak spots? Oh, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's constant. That's a, if, it's, if it's got a public IP address, you know, netted or not, it's sitting there open to attack, and it's being attacked constantly. So oh, that's, just that's, running through that's, the phone book. It's basically. not people; it's automated. There's right. there's a million mm-hmm. other machines that have already been hacked that are running these hacks against and looking for other vulnerabilities in in the rest of the internet. So that's constant. That's just a, a given. Mm-hmm. So your the, the, the computer that uh, HPR uses to just post things on Facebook. I mean, it has probably it's netted, but there's an IP address on the other side. How frequently is that address being poked at? Constantly. Somebody? Hundred times a day, probably tens of thousands. Wow, yeah, that's a that's an ongoing. So you know, you this is why people get in trouble for not keeping software updated. For example, they don't keep 
patches updated. They'll have an app that they're running that they don't update. Or, you know, it's, oh, they don't use it anymore, things like that. So that's how those vulnerabilities will start to occur uh, by not keeping your software current, you know, and your patches current. It's one of the most important things people can do that they absolutely ignore. They, mm-hmm. they don't take that just, just a, a little bit of minimal cyber hygiene. Are you seeing more uh, sort of the uh, integration of physical security and the work that you do, you know, look, let's say at the perimeter standpoint, and how that incorporates with the cybersecurity aspect of a business? Uh, and, you know, are they, are they sort of making the connection between the two? Um, so uh, it, we have an appalling record as, a, as, the, as an industry. The physical security world has uh, been very slow to get on board with cybersecurity. It's finally come, um, I'd say, full circle in the last uh, eight months, nine months. I started hearing about it last fall. Uh, only this past um, couple of months ago, I was doing a couple of different symposiums at mainland trade shows mm-hmm. uh, on 8021X, a very old protocol. It's built into our devices. Uh, Radius is a layer of protection you can put out there for these outdoor-connected IP devices um, that no one's using. And I've been in front of 800 integrators across the country, and no one to a man is using this because it's a little bit, you know, it's another layer of difficulty. And so it's another layer of expense, and you've got competitive pressure, you know, trying to, if I want to sell a four-camera system for X, and it's and another guy wants to sell it for X plus better security, most of the small guys will pay the cheaper price, so they're not getting good protection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, there's a lot of things that can be done, but they're not being done well. That's a fact. And it's not you know just the physical security industry. There's a lot of installers out there in, in the POS and the low-voltage industries, uh, audiovisual. Well, there is like a, that. there is a fear that you know this whole Internet of Things wave that is coming about in the – in fact, now, not in the near future, uh, is going to open up a lot of security risks because – Security isn't really inherently built into the Internet of Things. I call it the Internet of Theft. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so to to build on that, Sal, I mean, (laughs) you know, right now, let's say we're at a point where a lot of computers, provided you're keeping it patched, have really mature and robust security systems to at least repel the most common robotic attacks on your system. But now we're getting excited because your refrigerator can talk to things and your car can talk to things and your uh, thermometer can talk to things but they don't have i would say you know 20 to 30 years of computer security background in fact they probably use the cheapest simplest piece of software they could to run it so uh when you're talking about saying okay now i want to control my lamps in fact we just talked about that this morning oh i want to turn on my light with my phone with this thing that connects Mm -hmm. to the internet uh am i doomed to have my light flickering randomly in the future I hope not. You know. <laughs> I'm an optimist. I, I, I like my refrigerator to actually order food for me, and I like my car to file a, a report in it when it's ha- hit or rear-ended in a parking lot. I love those things. But as we go forward, I think technology is going to catch up with the security as well. And the, the challenge comes in, we will always be one step behind the hackers. Those guys have a motivation. You know, that's what the difference between offense and defense is. In defense, you have to be right 100% of the time. In offense, you have to be right only one time to score. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's where the challenge comes in. So as we go forward, we build the security around these devices. We build it, uh, 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 we try to secure it the best we can. But ultimately, w- there will be a mind that is going to break through it. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of the uh, businesses, and, and maybe Sal, you can help us here where. Uh, maybe it's a medium-sized business. I mean, what is it that uh, is 
probably tantamount on their minds to protect? Is it is it the social engineering aspect of the business and, and protecting, you know, sort of from the employee that might take intellectual property? Or is it the perimeter that they're trying to protect and trying to prevent outside attacks from coming in? You know, unfortunately, we have talked to a lot of organizations and they think that um, perimeter security is the highest, the best thing that they can ever come up with. Mm-hmm. But we call those Chinese walls, right? Regardless of how tall they are or how high they are, somebody's going to get over it. And somebody's going to uh, um, invade their territory. So social engineering is important. I mean, phishing is one of the best exercises that I always tell my customers to do it on their own employees. I set the CISO aside. I gave him a link and said, send it to your employees. See how many of them click. Ah, okay. Right. So they can get educated. So that that is huge. And then obviously you always have the insider threat program, mm-hmm. uh, uh, threat, uh, which is malicious employees, people who are trying to actually steal from you, sell for whatever reason it may be. They are not happy. They are being fired. They have health issues. They are depressed, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And um, that is another challenge you will be facing. Okay. Well, we, I want to get more into this kind of a uh, topic because, you know, from, from, I guess, businesses that need to protect, there's so many different things that they need to consider. Where do they even start? want to hold that thought. We will be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with both Zal Azmi and Andrew Lanning about cybersecurity. What are some of the safeguards that are the easiest or the most important to implement? And of course, if you've got a question, you can also call us at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. You are listening to Bite Marks Cafe. All of the different programs that are on at different times in public radio, it's like different colors in a palette. And you can paint whatever you want by picking the hours that you want to listen And you may want to go for the dark colors of Rembrandt or the bright colors of Monet, but it's your choice how you paint that landscape with those colors, with the different shows you listen to through the day. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. Hank Wesselman, author of The Bowl of Light. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my friendship with a Hawaiian elder, Hale Makua, ancestral wisdom from a Hawaiian shaman. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I am Ryan Rosal, and we're talking to Zal Asmi and Andrew Landing about cybersecurity. And, of course, you can give us a call here. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And right before the break, we are talking about uh, social engineering, uh, fishing, you know, fishing and, and perhaps creating sort of some tests, I guess, that you could actually <laughs> implement on your employees, <laughs> much like what, what uh, Zal and Ryan were talking about. Uh, what, what, what does that reveal? And if you're sending an email to your coworkers to perhaps uh, entice them to click on something, I mean, isn't, isn't the fact that it's coming from a known source going to get them to, you know, follow through with that click? You know, um, most of the time, Yes. You know, so uh, Homeland Security cre- created this program uh, called Think Before You Click. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this is something that stayed with me all the time. I actually got a nice email the other day. I want a car somewhere, uh, but I knew that I wasn't engaged with anyone, so how would I win a car? So I decided <laughs> mm-hmm. to throw it in the bin. But 
a lot of time it takes a organization to sort of masquerade as your sysadmin or masquerade as the CEO of the company to send you a message. You got to ask yourself the question, you know, when was the last time the CEO of company sent me a message? Mm-hmm. And do I want to click on this button? And before or click on this link. And the other part of it is you get one of those things that you say, you know what, it looks a little bit fishy. Why would I get this thing? The easiest thing to do is pick up the phone and call someone. Did you get the same thing? Maybe the person next to the next cubicle got the same one. So in which case now all of a sudden you know that it not only came to me but to all of my colleagues. So there's something wrong here. Right, right, right. And, you know, the other thing that seems to be at least uh, an indicator is that oftentimes – well, if you look at the email address, it might be a little off cue. The other thing is that oftentimes the English or the sentence structure is not quite right. And that's a cue that it may be something to kind of you look know, after. I, I think I would disagree with that because I think that they've gotten much more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. That, you know, they're not writing in broken English and sending you broken image links. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a very good friend of mine was spoofed on Facebook and was sending stories to all of the real person's friends saying, hey, I'm traveling and X, Y, and Z, and here's the scenario. And I so I know it sounds completely ridiculous, but I am completely stranded in this foreign country. And it happened that he was in another place. And so people, oh, yeah, he, he travels a lot. This makes sense. And, okay, I guess I'll Western Union. Some, mm-hmm. But they were not writing, like, you know, in broken English. They so- sounded – Totally credible. So I mean, we're going to interview each other right now. But how do you? Okay. So how do you protect against that? Which is a very valid. Uh, looks like it's a real request. How do you go through the process of determining that it's it's you know a phishing attack? I I mean a lot of people say trust but verify. I'm the other way. Verify and then trust. Mm-hmm. So you know when you get that phone call, it's your bank. They want you to do something. You get a phone call. It's the IRS. They want you to do something. You get. Um, a phone call from your sysadmin or from your IT provider. They want you to do something. Sit down and do this. Say, let me call you back. Just hang up the phone and call them back to make sure it's really them. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's one of the first things. Like, You need to verify these things. Someone at your door in a UPS outfit maybe isn't from UPS. It's not that hard to get a UPS uniform, for example. So social engineering has all of that's not just coming in via email. There's guys walking in your door pretending they're there to work on your network equipment. They're there to work on the power. They're there to work on the plumbing. And they've got a USB key that they, they're they looking for an open port on an unattended computer to try to infect your system. All they want to get is one outbound call, and then they can take over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, we've talked a lot about um, you know ways that people can be preyed upon and how they should think first, verify first, and make sure it's true. I, I also, as Bert mentioned, want to talk a little bit about the malicious actor because that's always an issue. I mean, I think the it was eye opening for me when my wife got her first retail job, and we're you know she's introducing me to the facility. It doesn't exist anymore, and, and um, I'm, all of the the cameras are pointed at the cash register, but they're not aimed where I would aim them at the cash register. And I said, well, why why are they on that side? And it turns out. of the investment in uh, security for that store was because of employee theft, not random people coming in and robbing them, but because Mm -hmm. employee theft was actually the vast majority of their losses. So, Zal, when you are counseling a company, and certainly a company has other issues if its employees hate them that much, (laughs) but uh, what are some of the things that you can do for that? Or is once someone is in and in a trusted position, uh, you're really in trouble? You have to vet them before they become part of your company. 
And you're absolutely right. So as part of our assessment, we do talk to the HR folks. You know, you have four people that manages your enterprise. How did how were they hired? Did you a basic background check? Do they have any criminal records? You know, did they pass that? What was their, their last two or three jobs that references? So let's say all of these things checks out. Great guy came on board. And now you have four people who have the key to the kingdom. Now, we invented this phrase in my company, Nexus, and we say, who's watching the watchers? So for those guys, we actually use electronic tools to monitor their activities when they use their superpowers Mm -hmm. to manage and maintain the system. And we collect all of their activities and send it to a site that they don't have access to. And we actually watch their activities separately from their – because if it is on their own network, they're going to change it because they have super access. Mm -hmm. So we collect those activities and put it somewhere else. And we educate the organization that is a worthwhile investment because you're protecting yourself. You never know when these people are actually going to go off the deep end, if any. Well, and I'm kind of interested in hearing what the – let's say the culture of that company might come back with in the the sense that – you know, you have these super, let's say, admins, and they are already established as trusted. But then there's something at a higher level that's perhaps in place in, in, in terms of trying to protect the company from those people going rogue. So there will always be this sort of environment where there is a level of some mistrust or distrust of, of anybody in the organization. So what happens as that culture of trust and distrust occurs from the employee and the employer. You know, it's interesting that um, a number of organizations that we have worked that with and we have done that, guess what? They actually welcome that, especially the sysadmins. Okay, okay. Because they were relieved that if something happens to the network, at least they know I have done my job. Exactly, yeah. The, the honest folks will appreciate that they are verifiable. And so they'll know that it wasn't them, and they can prove that it wasn't them, and that gives them that tool. Oh, I see. Right. Actually, good, good. I would say that would that was my experience as well. I mean, your boss knows you are a super user with access to everybody's computer and email and information coming and going and such. How do I know you're not snooping around? Um, apart from me telling you. In fact, you're right that some level of skepticism or mistrust might be an element of any employer-employee relationship. So. Having an independent auditor and, you know, banks and other organizations are required to have someone from outside take a look. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked when uh, Zal mentioned, you know, uh, using their superpowers because in some organizations, if they're not uh, really up on their security protocols, a lot of administrators stay logged in as admin all the time because it just makes life easier. easier. And so that's one thing to certainly be watching for in terms of uh, careless practices. Uh, so, Andrew, um when, you, when you're doing this external assessment and they welcome that, what about the counterpart? What if somebody says, I, if you don't trust you know, I don't want – in fact, there was a very famous case a few years ago in California. Super user of the state government system refused to give up passwords to the network and actually held them ransom. I mean, so when you have a, suddenly an adversarial relationship, what's your recourse? Well, you got to get rid of them. I mean, that's unfortunately, I mean, you know, that, that, that person's not trustworthy inside your organization. So you've got, you know, the, there's a controls you can put on your data at rest and your data in motion so you can know what's been accessed. You've got to, you've got to limit access to what is required. And no, obviously no one should be using any kind of administrative access all the time. That's just, that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, watching the people and monitoring them is critical. Um, I think Zal can attest that, you know, uh, a cybersecurity posture or a, a cyber defense posture really is what I prefer to call it. I don't 
think security really exists out there, um, is fluid. You know, that, that situation that you have today, that audit that you passed on Tuesday afternoon, you know, by Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, it's really no longer valid because the environment's changing constantly. So uh, as much as your hardware environment, your perimeter environment's changing, your internal environment's changing, and monitoring those staff, especially those staff that have access to uh, critical assets, assets or information that, that could be sold today, you can sell it anonymously, be paid in Bitcoin anonymously. This These transactions can occur. So organizations and, you know, the information that you have inside your organization may not be what they're seeking at all. You know, typically if you're a small business, you're just a vector into right. one of your larger clients. And so they're going to try to get you to be a carrier, get you mm-hmm. to carry them inside that organization so they don't have to, you know, put on a put on a mask or put on a, on, on a costume and risk their own uh, – Hide. Now, Zal, one of the things that uh, we're concerned about, of course, is information leaving your company. And certainly, if you have an employee that can put it on a flash drive and walk out, that's one thing. Um, and I'm a little out of date, so I wanted to know if this is still a solution. Some software providers uh, basically filter anything outbound, and the implementer of the security solution can say, "Well, you know what? These seven digits are our bank account number. These are uh, this is the these are the patterns for social security numbers. Here's what uh, medical record information might look like." And basically, it's able to flag. And stop uh, quarantine something coming out of your company that might possibly for some reason be a problem. Like if it has the bank account number, why is that being sent out via email? If it has a social security number or a number of social security numbers, why is that going out? Let's hold it and have someone look at it. Is that still a solution or are there other better ways to protect against the the escape of secure information? You know, that's definitely one solution. So you stop it at that gateway. Uh, But a smarter solution would be to tag the data. So the data is tagged with sensitivity level that requires that protection. So if it's my social security number, I will tag it that this, this social security or this format of data will not leave even my desktop or my servers. So regardless of what you're going to do, it, it's going to stop right there. It says, you can transmit me because it's not in my DNA. My DNA says I'm going to stay here. So data tagging is really, really important with um, um, content management. Uh, I think it's a solution that is probably... Uh, more reasonable in terms of price, and I'm talking about now purely in terms of small, medium-sized businesses because large businesses and government have different mechanisms for protecting their data, mm-hmm. which is much more robust. But for majority of what we are dealing with, I think that would be a good solution. Well, so when you say, if you could help me when you say tagging, um, if I am in an email in my regular email, I'm not sending a database file or anything that maybe might have that tag applied, uh, do those solutions help also when I'm literally entering a social security number and saying this is Bert and this is what he had for dinner last night or whatever? That that, that can you know, unfortunately, that it brings a real case in mind. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. And uh, it was stopped at the um, perimeter. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of security engineers who are really smart, they don't configure their uh, security parameters only for intrusion, but they also configure it for exfiltration. So a lot of time you'll find that there are software you buy that are dormant, that they collect information. Once they have the information, they want to call home. And nobody would think that their firewall comes under attack from inside. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, they are always looking outside. So a smart CISO or an engineer will configure this to look at both ways, what is coming in, what is going out. Mm-hmm. And that was a real case. It was a large government organization that came under attack from inside. And um, we were called in actually to look into it. And uh, so, uh, you know, there are certain ways to actually protect that information depending on what you're using and how you're using it. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, in terms of, uh, I guess, 
for both of you, I mean, being in Hawaii, looking at some of the situations that you're going in and consulting on, I mean, to what level of convincing do you have to do in general for the business community here in Hawaii, Andrew? Uh, I do not get off my soapbox lately. I am concerned. That's why we're here today on this show. That's mm-hmm. why we're talking about Hibachi Talk. I'm taking every chance I can get with the ISSA and the the uh, you know ISC Squared team, and just everyone is trying to raise awareness because I I believe the the business community up up to the enterprise level is ninety percent obtuse about mm. their vulnerabilities. I think they they're too busy working, doing their day to day tasking, trying to build their businesses, and they're just not looking at this. They think it's not going to happen to them, and and sadly, it, Zal could probably give us some stats. It, it probably already has. So Zal, is it as uh, dire as that? If you, you, in addition to going to the mainland conferences, you come back and you see what actual businesses are implementing, uh, is there a problem? Is there a gap that is? Uh you know, uh, uh, I will second what Andrew said. Uh, we have a bigger challenge. Um, 80% of people that are not in IT sector, they don't know anything about cybersecurity. They didn't even hear about Sony's hack. They mm-hmm. didn't hear about Walmart. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't hear about Anthem. Everybody gets a new cart and they think, well, it's time to get a new cart. Nobody has the question like, wait a minute, why are you <laughs> changing my car? So people are actually, the level of awareness that we want this nation to have is not in place yet. We need to make sure everybody understands what's going on. So uh, it's just a, it's a matter of continually trying to outreach, communicate, convince as part of your twenty four seven job. Sure, and then and then you know where's your spend? You know, as we we touched on just briefly earlier, you know, how do you know how to invest to protect? You mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. and you so because they don't know how to start, so they you know so you've got to start with some assessment. You know, you got where can where can we find some information about what you're doing? I mean, of course, Hibachi talks, but where can we find more about IST? Um, uh, IST Hawaii. I follow my Twitter. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're everywhere. Google. You can you can look us up. Integrated Security Technologies. But you know better. Go go look at the Sands Institute. Go look at NIST. Go look this this documentation is available uh, online. And you know start to if you're owning a company or you're in charge of a company or in educate charge of its yourself. data, start to educate yourself. You mm-hmm. know. And Zal Nexus Solutions. Where can someone learn more? Uh, uh, Nexus Solution, I mean, we're focused obviously on cybersecurity, and I agree with Andrew. Look at all of the information that is available, but tailor it to your own organization, to your own needs. You can find a lot of information about our company at nexuscio.com, and um, we're out there. Fantastic. Very good. Well, Zal Azmi is the president and CEO of Nexus Solutions, and Andrew Landing heads up Integrated Security Technologies, and we want to thank you both for joining us today. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about the sharing economy and transportation. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And, of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And I'm at Hawaii. My son is now 13. Happy birthday at Aloha, Zach. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Hot Chip and a song called Hirachi Lights. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Baby, love.